0: We continue our series on the uh, letter of Peter, the first letter. And so I invite you to turn your Bibles to that letter. It's right after James, which is after Hebrews. This letter that was written to uh, believers in Jesus in the first century still matters to us. They lived in a time where we could say they were, they were Christians in a pre-Christian world, uh, a world where they were often met with disdain and hostility, and we are Christians in a post-Christian world, where we also are going to be met with disdain and sometimes hostility. So this letter speaks to us. last week, we looked at the opening greeting in verses 1 and 2, in which Peter reminded the believers of who they are, what's true about them in this world, and what's true about us. As believers, and now he starts to expand on those truths uh, in the rest of the letter. So our passage this morning is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-5, just three verses, but again, packed with hope. <laughs> Let's read those and then ask for God's blessing on understanding it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. We bless your name, Lord. And our prayer is that after we've seen all of the reasons Peter gives for that blessing, that we would bless you more, <laughs> that we'd bless you more intelligent, intelligently, more, more aware of why you're so great, and that that would fill our hearts, Lord, with the hope that Peter intended to communicate, that you intend to communicate through this passage. So give us hearts to hear and receive and to believe what you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I was reading a counseling booklet from the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, also known as CCEF. And the author describes what, uh, the underlying worldview of a hopeless person in a way that I thought was insightful. Here's what he says. Intellectually, hopelessness is the utter certainty that there is no solution to a problem. And the loss of what he values is certain. He sees no hope. Emotionally, hopelessness is a pervasive despair and misery or dread of the future. He feels no hope. Now, I think that's helpful because it distinguishes the feeling of hopelessness from the root cause of the hopelessness. In other words, the re- if you reason that your situation is hopeless, then you will feel hopeless. If you're convinced that your problems will not go away and that you're going to lose what's really important to you, then you will wake up every day with nothing to be excited about and dreading the future. You feel hopeless Because you have reasoned that your situation is hopeless. Many people struggle with hopelessness. You might be one of them. You might be one. It's a real temptation when you have job stress, financial problems, marriage issues, poor health. Or when you hear the latest about what's going on in the world. I think... The reason broadcast news reports include a human interest story at the end oftentimes is because they think we need to close with some kind of light-hearted material to offset the massacres, the threat of North Korea, the racial tensions, the political fighting, and all sorts of scandals. Because that's what our news basically is most of the time. Bad news. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, you have the added stress of knowing that living faithfully for Christ will cost you. You are swimming upstream against the current of culture, and you can have trouble for that. So there's a temptation for us to reason that our situation is hopeless and therefore to feel despair and dread. About the future, and the Lord knows that, which is why He had Peter write this paragraph that we read. Because this paragraph is about why believers in Jesus Christ always have a reason for hope. Always, you always have a reason for hope. Therefore, you do not need to feel hopeless. Verse 3 says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope is one that's very much alive. It's like a plant that's growing in good soil. To have a living hope is to have a growing confidence that things are going to turn out greatly in your favor. (laughs) One translation says, Now we live with great expectation. That's what Peter's trying to communicate. It's waking up in the morning, not with dread, not filled with worry, but confident that something good is in your future. Peter says you can live that way. You can live that way. You don't need to feel hopeless because in reality, your situation is not hopeless if you're a Christian. To reverse the definition of hopelessness we saw earlier, there is a solution to all of your problems and you will not lose what is valuable for your life. So let's see what Peter has to say to us and how he builds his case. Having opened with the greeting to believers who are tempted to be disheartened by circumstances, here's the first thing he has to say. He says, Blessed be God. (laughs) Blessed be God. Specifically, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just any God, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God, that God we bless. We get our word eulogy from the Greek word behind blessed here. Um, A eulogy is what a person gives at a funeral where you extol the virtues of a person. She was such a loving person. She was so merciful. He was a great dad. That's what a eulogy is. You are praising a person for all of their good qualities. And I remember how I was affected at Mark Columbia's funeral. Some of you know Mark Columbia better than I do or did. He's, with, he's in glory now. Um, but person after person came up at the funeral saying all of the virtues. What, a, what an impact that he made on their lives. They dearly loved him for a good reason. It was very moving. Well, Peter wants us to eulogize God here. That's what he's doing. He wants us to be moved by thinking about the virtues and the wonderful acts of God. So he bursts forth in praise, not in the past tense, as if God were not around anymore, but in the present tense. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to praise the God who lives. I want to praise the God who has sent his son Jesus into the world. I want to tell you what this God has done to give us a living hope. I want to describe the reasons that you can live with great expectations. That's what he's going to go on to do, is give those reasons, what it is he's blessing God for. But don't miss this, friends. Notice that when Peter writes to people who are tempted to feel hopeless, He starts out with God, not with us. He starts out with God, not our circumstances. After his initial greeting, he doesn't say, now let's talk about your problems. Let's talk about your fears. Let's talk about what you need to do to protect yourself and fix the problems of the world. No, he says, let's talk about God. Let's praise God. Let's think about who He is before we start talking about your situation because the answer to hopelessness is not found in yourself and in what you can do. It's found in God and what He's already done. Our natural temptation when we're faced with problems and bad news is to look to ourselves or to others and to get busy. You know, Oh no, what am I going to do about this? But God says, no, that's not where you start. The hope isn't with you, it's with me. Look to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and bless His name. (laughs) Isn't that the very thing Jesus models for us in the Lord's Prayer of Matthew 6? He said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want to start out with, give us this day our daily bread. And he says, No, we don't start there. We start with God and His holiness. We start with, May your name be treated as holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And then after that, okay, give us this day our daily bread. In the context of that. But we don't start with us, we start with God. So much hopelessness comes from the fact that we cut God right out of the equation. Everything is horizontal. Everything is about us versus our problems. But praise to God is actually the soil in which hope grows. Abraham modeled that for us. The Lord told him when he was about 100 years old, and Sarah was beyond childbearing and never had a child, couldn't have children, the Lord told him, you'll have a son. <laughs> and Paul says about Abraham's mindset in Romans 4:20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. His practice of giving glory to God was the soil in which he grew strong in faith. It's in hope that he believed against hope, as verse 18 says. Though he couldn't reason how he could ever have a son, he decided to praise God and set his mind on what God could do. And so hope grew in his soul. Faith grew. Blessed be God. Set your mind on God. If you think about what he's done, it puts strength in your bones and confidence in your hearts. So let's see what God has done. Let's find out the reasons we can live with great expectations. Here's the first reason to have a living hope. God has caused you to be born again to an inheritance. God has caused you to be born again to an inheritance, if you're a believer. Again, verse 3. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. Now, we'll talk in detail about what the inheritance is in the the next point, but here we want to see how it is that we come into it. And that is because God caused us to be born again to this inheritance according to great mercy. Born again. The the verb here is literally to beget. Beget. Again, which describes the father's role in conception, not the mother's. In the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, for example, in the King James Version, it follows the Greek, which reads, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and so forth. To beget is for the father to initiate conception. A life is conceived that wasn't there before. Well, here it says God begets you again. (laughs) You were conceived physically by means of your earthly father, but now you are conceived spiritually by means of your heavenly father. You have been given spiritual life by the initiative and activity of God himself. And the Apostle Paul fleshes out what that means in more detail in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. He says of the believers in the church of Ephesus, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved. For God to cause you to be born again is to take you from being dead in your trespasses and sins and to make you alive with Christ. That's what happens. It's a fundamental change in who you are. Once you were dead, not physically, but spiritually. You were, as Paul goes on to say in verse 12, you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were alive, but you had no real hope because you didn't know Christ. You didn't have forgiveness for your sins, he's saying. You didn't have any of the promises of eternal life that were for you. You didn't have the favor of God upon you. You were without God, and worse, as he says in verse 3, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not knowing Christ, you were on the road that leads to death, to the eternal death under God's wrath for your sins. He says this to the church, that's what you were like. Everybody was like that. You were in a desperate place and you were unable to do anything about it. You were dead. But the good news is that God is rich in mercy and is inclined to do something about your deadness and my deadness. Peter says, according to his great mercy, he causes you to be born again to a living hope. You were without hope and now you have hope. You were without Christ. Now you have Christ. There's a time that you repented of your sins and you put your trust in Jesus and His blood took away the guilt of your sins. And His resurrection guarantees that you will follow Him in His resurrection one day. Now all the promises of God are yours. Now goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life as David sang about in Psalm 23. But all of that according to Peter, happened because God caused it to happen. God caused you to be born again. He has begotten you. He has conceived you. You didn't cause your spiritual birth any more than you caused your physical birth. It happened to you, not by you. Yes, you had to repent and believe the gospel to be saved, but behind your repentance and belief is the activity of God who caused you to repent and believe. You were dead. You couldn't do it. And he said, live, and gave it to you. And so you lived. It's, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the faith we need to be saved is the gift of God and not our own doing. God did it all. God saves. God gives life. Now, you might wonder why Peter starts with that. Why does it matter? That we know that God caused us to be born again to a living hope, as opposed to saying something more generic, like, God has given us a living hope. Wouldn't that be enough? Not for Peter. Not for God who wrote this (laughs) through Peter. Here's why I think Peter points our attention to God's role in our salvation. It has to do with what kind of a God you think you have in this world. Do you have a God who just offers salvation but leaves you to finish the job with your response? Or do you have a God who saves? And the implication for living as a Christian in a post Christian world is this Is he the kind of God who will help you in your trials but will leave the final outcome into your hands? Or is he the kind of God who guarantees that the final outcome is going to be good? Those are two different gods. And the answer makes all the difference in how much hope you actually have day by day. I can't think of a better illustration than the one I heard John Piper use, which he got, I think, from Jonathan Edwards a long time ago. One view of salvation is this. You are a person drowning in a lake, and Jesus throws out a life preserver to you. And he says, grab onto this, and you will be saved. And if you do, you'll thank Jesus, for the life preserver at least. You'll be grateful. But you'd know that you also had to do your part. You had to save yourself by grabbing hold of what he offered. But here's another view of salvation. You've already drowned. You're already dead in your trespasses and sins. You're at the bottom of the lake. But Jesus swims down to where you are, and he pulls out your dead body and lays you on the shore, and then he labors over you. Breathing life into your lungs, getting your heart going. And he keeps working on you and working on you until finally breath and life and heartbeat and you live while he dies at your side. Literally giving his life to you. He didn't just make it possible for you to be saved. He saved you. That's the salvation Peter's talking about. That's the God Peter's talking about. That's the Savior you have in this world. God doesn't just offer salvation. He saves. He causes you to be born again. Which God would you rather have in your corner in this world of trials? Would you rather have a God who only throws you a life preserver and expects you to do the rest while you're struggling with the latest fearful situation? Or would you rather have a God who saves, a God who guarantees the final outcome is going to be in your favor? (laughs) That's the God I want. That's the God we actually have. He has caused us to be born again, and that is to an inheritance. So let's talk about the inheritance, because that's the content of the living hope that we have. We can live with great expectation because God is keeping an inheritance for you. That's the second point. God is keeping an inheritance for you. Verse 4 tells us that God caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, that sounds pretty good to me. I like those words. <laughs> imperishable, undefiled, unfading. If you're a believer, you have, you have an inheritance from God. Described that way. Well, what exactly is that? What is this inheritance Well, to use a present-day example, my dad owns the family farm back in Wisconsin. And it's the farm I grew up in high school and college. And he has written into his will that when he passes, that land will go to my siblings and myself. We are each going to inherit some property. So an inheritance is a share in someone else's property and possessions And that falls to you. And this is how the word inheritance is used frequently in the Old Testament. And the inheritance of the people of Israel was the promised land, the land beyond the Jordan, the land that used to belong to the Canaanites and the Amorites and all these other people. And he gives this to them. He says, That's your land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. This is where you can prosper. And I'm giving it to you. And so, you read in the book of Joshua, where they begin to take possession of their land. There's all these wars and so forth. But eventually, they they have the property, and they divide it all up by lot according to tribes. And every tribe has their share in this inheritance, this promised place. Now, Peter, who's from a Jewish background, is thinking of that kind of inheritance, But the possession he's thinking of here is not a possession on this earth. But one that's way better, one that's far better. He's speaking of a heavenly inheritance. You can see that by the way he describes it. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's it's a place, it's a true home in a new heaven and a new earth. That's where it is. That's where it's located it's substantially different from and better than anything that you can inherit here. Uh, it isn't of this earth. We can call it a share in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. Paul uses that language in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5 5, he says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So those who repent of their sins, like Paul mentions here, and who believe in Christ as Savior, have been born again to receive an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Your promised land is your share in God's eternal kingdom which is beyond great, which is beyond our imagination. Uh, we don't know as much about this kingdom as we would like to know. Uh, I want to see it so that I can know what it is. But we walk by faith, right? So he's not going to let us see everything. There's always going to be an element of faith about this inheritance, this kingdom that's out there. But he gives us enough information that we can know you're going to like it. You are really, really going to like Your inheritance. (laughs) If you read Revelation chapter 21, you know that in this kingdom, nobody ever dies. In fact, nobody even feels any pain there. (laughs) No one even cries there. Because nobody mourns, there is no tragedy. Nothing bad ever happens (laughs) in this kingdom where you have a share. Now that sounds pretty good. (laughs) Can you imagine how happy you'd be right now if you were pain-free, trouble-free, completely healthy, and guaranteed that everything that happens all day long is just going to be one good thing after another? Would you wake up happy if you thought, that's my day, (laughs) and that's how I am? (laughs) You'd be insanely happy And God says, You're going to be. (laughs) Because you have this inheritance where that's the way every day is. You know, it's even better than that. Because Christ Himself is there, it is the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's there. That voice in Revelation 21 said of the heavenly city that the dwelling place of God is with man. God will dwell with man. God will walk with man. Just like he did in the Garden of Eden. He walked in the cool of the day. He will walk. And who will he be? We will see him as Jesus. (laughs) And the sky will be filled with the glory and there will be no need for the sun because the glory of God will be all around us. And Jesus will be there in person. You'll see him with your own eyes. John said that in his first letter. We shall see him as he is. Not just as he was in his frail human flesh, but in his glorified flesh. His glorified body. But a body. And you will touch him. Like Thomas did. You remember Thomas? One of the twelve apostles? He wasn't there when Jesus appeared after his resurrection to the room full of the other guys. And they tell him all about how Jesus is risen. He says, I'll never believe it unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. And then Jesus shows up and he says, here I am, go ahead and do it. I'm real, flesh. Here they are. Here's the scars for you. Now healed. (laughs) You'll follow me with your own healed body one day. But he's going to be there. You're going to be able to see and touch and talk with Jesus. I don't think anything can be better than that. And I love how Peter describes this inheritance, this possession that falls to us. He says it's imperishable which means it will never end. This can't end. (laughs) The good times don't end. It's undefiled. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It is perfect. It is untouched by the fallen world of sin. He says it's unfading. We might say today the shine never wears off. (laughs) Unlike a movie that you've seen too many times. Or if you work at Dairy Cream and you bring home a blizzard every day and after a while you can't stand the sight of one. (laughs) The good things in this life lose their appeal after too much use, but not your inheritance. Everything there is endlessly enjoyable and it never wears off. It never gets boring. Note the last thing Peter says about your inheritance. This is where this point's been heading. He says, it is kept in heaven for you. It is kept in heaven for you. God is keeping it for you. Other translations say it's reserved in heaven for you. It has your name on it. (laughs) Like the boundaries that Joshua drew up for the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Naphtali, the Lord has marked out your spot. In this eternal land, it's, it's waiting for you. He set it aside for you. And it it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So that, my friends, is a living hope. To know that you have that. That allows you to wake up every day and say, I've got something good to look forward to. I, I know the best is yet to come. In this world, I may not have much. In this world, I may suffer. In this world, I will cry. But there, God will wipe away every tear. There, I will see the face of God, and I will be eternally happy. God is keeping that inheritance for you. That's a reason to have great expectations. But here's something that might enter into your minds in the midst of your trials and your bad news, a believer might wonder if he or she might do something to lose this inheritance. You might wonder if you'll make shipwreck of the faith if it gets too hard to follow Jesus. And if that question has never occurred to you, it should because other scriptures tell us very clearly that you must persevere in faith to the end in order to be saved. For example, Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul says in Colossians 1, and 23, Christ has now reconciled you in His body of flesh by His death, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You and I must endure to the end. You and I must continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel in order to come into our inheritance. So how do we know we're going to do that? Can we lose our reservation at the banquet table of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter tells us good news, and that's the final reason we have a living hope. It's that God is keeping you for your inheritance. God is keeping you for your inheritance. He's not only keeping your inheritance for you, He's keeping you for the inheritance. And we see that in verse 5. You, that is, you who are born again to a living hope, born again to an inheritance, you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. You're being guarded for salvation. Yes, you are being guarded through faith. Faith is necessary. But what is guarding you is God's power, which ensures that you do continue in faith so that you will receive your salvation, so that you will come into your inheritance, which will be revealed on the last day. We have a picture of how that works in the life of Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11.32, Paul's in the city of Damascus, and the authorities are seeking to arrest him. And we're told that the king, King Aretas, was guarding the city to keep Paul from escaping. Same word, guarding. That's the picture Peter has in mind here. God is the king who is guarding you so that you cannot escape from his kingdom. You cannot escape the salvation that God is ready to reveal to you on the last day. He is going to keep you in faith to the end So that you can receive it despite your trials and sufferings. If you're a believer in Jesus, he will keep you in the faith. Peter knows that truth firsthand by his own experience. Remember what Jesus said to him after Peter gushed his enthusiasm. I will never deny you. And And Jesus knows better and he knows he's going to deny him three times. And then after he tells him that, he says to Peter... Um, lost my place. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. (laughs) Peter, you're going to be tempted. You're going to fall big time. You are going to completely blow it. But your faith won't fail because I'm praying for you. (laughs) And when it does come back, when you you are strengthened, strengthen your brothers. God will keep you in the faith. That's a promise that God gives to his people in Jeremiah 32, 40. He says, I will make with them, talking about his people, us, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. (laughs) God says, I will not turn away from you. And I will make sure you don't turn away from me. <laughs> yes, you must continue in the faith in order to get to your inheritance, but I will make sure that you do. I am guarding you for your salvation. I am keeping you for your inheritance. John Bunyan has a great illustration of this in Pilgrim's Progress. You should read that book if you've never read it. Christian goes into the interpreter's house early on in his Christian journey and the interpreter is explaining to him all these things about the Christian life and he shows him a a fire that's burning up against a wall and uh, there's somebody throwing water on it trying to put it out but it keeps burning higher and hotter. And he wants to know what this means. The interpreter takes him around to the backside of the wall and he sees a man with a vessel of oil in his hand secretly pouring oil into the fire. (laughs) So that even though somebody's dousing it, it never goes out because he's pouring oil in there. The interpreter explains it all. He says the devil is the one trying to put out the work of grace in the heart. But Christ is the one secretly keeping it going so that it's never extinguished picture of you being guarded by God's power through faith, faith that he is sustaining to the end so that you will not lose your inheritance. God is keeping you for it. Well, as we close, let's bring this together. What is the living hope that you and I have in Christ? Remember, we started out with a definition of hopelessness, which is, first of all, that belief that nothing good is going to happen to you um, begins it. And then what follows is this feeling of hopelessness, despair, misery, waking up dreading the future every day, no energy for life because you think there's no point. But what we've seen in the Scriptures is that no follower of Jesus has a reason to feel hopeless because it's not true that nothing good is going to happen to you. The facts are you have a glorious inheritance in the kingdom of God. You have something better than a rich uncle who would leave you his fortune on this earth. You have the infinite God, ruler of heaven and earth, who has given you a share in life beyond your imagination. He's caused you to be born again into it by removing your sin so that there's no barrier now between you and God, you and your inheritance. And he's keeping it for you. It's reserved. Your name is there. This belongs to you. And he's keeping you for it. Nothing on this earth, not even you, can keep you from it. Not if you're born again. Not if God has conceived you as a new spiritual life. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can prevent you from your story ending, ending happily ever after. I think that's hope enough for every day. And I think because it's a living hope, it grows over time. As you see God's faithfulness in this thing and that thing and another thing, and as you, you let go your hold on all the false hopes of this world, money and safety and freedom and things like that, as you let go of that and you trust yourself completely to God the rock, it grows. The hope grows. And you start to look forward to that inheritance all the more. It's coming. It's coming to me. It's almost here. There is no reason for hopelessness. Not with Jesus Christ and His kingdom belonging to you. Let's pray. O oh Lord, give us this living hope evermore. May it rise in our hearts. May, may we believe. Help us to believe, Lord, in these things. Help us to do as Paul said in Colossians. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is. Oh Lord, help us to set our minds there to not just get busy. You want us to do things, definitely. But you don't want us to start with doing things. You want us to start with knowing you and blessing you. And we do bless you, Lord. Thank you for a real hope and not a passing one. Thank you for something substantial, something that bears the weight of every crisis and still leaves us with hope and joy. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.